Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. I hope you like what you're hearing here at the Right Take and finding the conversations that we're having here to be both entertaining and enlightening. If so, please take a moment to subscribe to The Right Take if you haven't already, and also please leave a positive review if you like what you hear. It helps with those all-important algorithms and is very much appreciated. Well, today's episode is going to be one of those very infrequent grab bag episodes in which I rant about two or three issues that I feel strongly about and that I feel are important enough to share with you. I should do more of these, actually, even though The Right Take is largely an interview-style podcast. Anyway, first up, I want to talk about a recent news item that I found to be just outrageously upsetting and maddening, and I think you will too if you haven't already heard about it. But I'm not bringing it up simply as a kind of outrage porn to get you pointlessly worked up over something. I'm addressing this issue because it's a grotesque example of the kind of government abuse of power and cruel denial of parental rights that progressives lust for. It happens to have taken place in the UK, not in America, but it demonstrates just what a death cult progressivism is, and it's an outrage that could easily happen here as well if we don't reverse course in our culture. If you know about this incident, you've probably already guessed that I'm referring to the government murder a little over a week ago of a disabled infant named Indy Gregory, who was forced off life support by the United Kingdom court system. Let me read to you this piece from Intellectual Takeout about the incident, written by Kurt Malberg. He writes, Indy Gregory, a critically ill eight-month-old baby girl from Derbyshire, England, was taken off life support over the weekend. Diagnosed with a rare degenerative mitochondrial disease, Indy had won the hearts of the British and global public. Her parents, the Vatican's pediatric hospital, and even the Italian government waged a desperate campaign to keep her alive. Indy had been receiving treatment at the Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham, England, before being moved to hospice care. Indy's doctors had declared that she had no awareness of her surroundings. Furthermore, the treatment she was receiving wasn't working and caused her pain, they claim. The doctors argued that she should be taken off life support and allowed to die peacefully. Well, refusing to accept the fate declared by physicians, Indy's parents, Dean Gregory and Claire Staniforth, went to court to keep her life support turned on. They hoped her life might be prolonged with the aid of experimental treatments. They took their legal battles first to the High Court and then to the Court of Appeal in London. Recognizing her delicate situation, the Vatican's pediatric hospital, Bambino Gesù, had offered to provide care for Indy. Last week, too, Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney took the extraordinary step of granting Indy emergency citizenship, to fast-track her treatment in Rome, even offering to cover the cost of her treatment. Shortly after these developments, the Vatican Press Office released a statement from Pope Francis, conveying his concern and prayers for Indy's family. Despite all of these efforts, the judges overseeing Indy's case said that moving her to Italy was not in Indy's best interests, labeling the intervention by the Italian government wholly misconceived. Judges also ruled that her international transfer was, quote, not in the spirit, unquote, of the 1996 Hague Convention, which outlines guidelines 
for child protection issues that are cross-border and which both nations are involved in. The appeal court judges likewise rejected last-minute efforts by Indy's parents to allow her to pass away peacefully in the family home. Indy's parents had also sought to persuade judges at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, France, to overturn the decisions, but to no avail. Indy's father, Dean, released a statement after her death, writing, quote, Indy's life ended at 1.45 a.m. Claire and I are angry, heartbroken, and ashamed. The NHS, the National Health Service, and the courts not only took away her chance to live a longer life, but they also took away Indy's dignity to pass away in the family home where she belonged. They did succeed in taking Indy's body and dignity, but they can never take her soul. They tried to get rid of Indy without anybody knowing, but we made sure she would be remembered forever. I knew she was special from the day she was born. Claire held her for her final breaths. Unquote. ABC News has called this case the latest in a series of legal wrangles in the UK between parents and doctors over the treatment of terminally ill children, saying that British judges have repeatedly sided with doctors in cases where the best interests of the child take precedence, even if parents object to a proposed course of treatment. Unquote. It's difficult to make sense of Indy Gregory's story apart from an aggressive secularism in the West that has paved the way for widespread approval of practices like abortion and euthanasia. Once upon a time, every child's life was viewed as sacred. Now lives like Indy's are routinely placed in the hands of public officials and are subjected to vague, pragmatic concerns for the greater good. Malberg goes on to write that a spiritual perspective on a case like Indy's would not only have taken the wishes of her family into account, but it would also have allowed for the possibility of divine intervention. Indeed, history is strewn with stories of last-minute miracles and medical cases that defy the odds. The silver lining, if there is any in Indy's situation, is that her story did not take place unnoticed. A watching world followed her case in real time, observing the conduct of the elites who decided her fate. And Malberg concludes by saying, perhaps her death will prove to be part of the wake-up the West needs, to once again embrace the sanctity of human life. Well, don't bet on it. Progressivism is a death cult and a cult of state power. Now, the intellectual takeout article that I just read did not address another angle of the story, which is the family's religious conversion. I think this is significant, so let me read this short Fox News piece about it. Quote, Indy was baptized before her death, despite her family not originally being religious. Dean Gregory, Indy's father, said before her death, that he was inspired to baptize his daughter by Christian legal volunteers who fought to keep her alive. Dean said he became convinced of the existence of the devil by his family's treatment in the courtroom. Quote, I am not religious and I am not baptized, but when I was in court, it felt like I had been dragged to hell, Dean Gregory said in a November 6th interview. I thought, if hell exists, then heaven must exist. It was like the devil was there. I thought, if there's a devil, then God must exist. Unquote. Indy was defended in courts by legal counsel Christian Concern. Dean Gregory said his legal counsel's compassion for his daughter, in contrast to the hell that he experienced in court, convinced him to seek baptism. He said, A Christian volunteer visited the intensive care unit every day, and she told me baptism protects you and opens the doors to heaven. I was also really struck by my lawyers from the Christian Legal Center, the way they supported me and their dedication. It was like Indy's baptism was also a way of recognizing their work, unquote. 
The father clarified that Indy's baptism was not merely an expression of gratitude to the Christian volunteers who had fought to save his child, saying that he would like to seek baptism for himself and his surviving daughter as well. I have seen what hell is like, and I want Indy to go to heaven, Dean Gregory said. In fact, I've decided that me and my daughter should get baptized too. We want to be protected in this life and go to heaven, unquote. Senior UK judges Lord Justice Peter Jackson, Lady Justice Eleanor King, and Lord Justice Andrew Moylan were the judges who refused the Gregory's appeal, ruling that the Italian government and the Vatican were wholly misconceived in attempting to transfer the ill infant into their custody. Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney was a public supporter of the Gregory's making aggressive pushes on the UK government to release Indy into her country's custody. Maloney wrote on social media in the days leading up to Indy's death, quote, They say there isn't much hope for little Indy, but until the very end, I'll do what I can to defend her life and to defend the right of her mama and papa to do all that they can for her, unquote. And that's the end of the Fox News piece. A prominent pro-life activist Lila Rose wrote on Twitter, which is now called X, of course, the following eulogy, which really sums up the tragedy and where I think we must go from here. Lila Rose wrote, quote, Deeply saddened to share that baby Indy has passed away after being deprived breathing assistance. Let me be clear. The British government murdered her. They denied the right of Indy's parents to pursue other treatment for her, keeping her captive by the court-mandated medical team that decided Indy must die. The medical team violated their sacred duty to do no harm. This is murder, plain and simple. It's a stain on the national conscience of the U.K., there must be a reckoning, there must be reform, and there must be reparations for the evil acts committed by both the medical teams and the UK courts. Pray for Indy's grieving parents and let's work together to ensure such horror never happens again. Unquote. That was from uh, pro-life activist Lila Rose. And indeed, we must pray for that and work together to strip these totalitarian eugenicists of their merciless power to put to death an infant even in the face of extraordinary international efforts to give her care. It is unconscionable that any government can claim the right to take a child, regardless of whether that child is disabled, from her parents and to take life from the child. This is the logical extension of the progressive position on abortion, which is that there should be no limits on when to abort. This is the logical extension of the progressive position that the state should decide that a child's quality of life is more important than life itself. And if you don't think that's where the United States government is headed in its current far-left incarnation, then you're not paying attention. The government already believes that parents don't have the right to have a say in their child's education, and the government has already labeled concerned parents domestic terrorists. Progressivism is a death cult, and progressives are collectivists who do not believe in protecting the rights of the individual against the state or against the collective. And so you get travesties of justice, like the murder of baby Indy in the UK. Now I want to move on to a recent article from the Daily Wire that also got me revved up a bit because it further demonstrates the left's obsession with perverting what used to be this nation's most wholesome, patriotic, and non-political organizations and with indoctrinating our youth into their identity politics lunacy. The article is about the Girl Scouts of the USA being offered a four-part racial equity training series to volunteers and parents focusing on 
internalized racism and white supremacy culture. The article starts, The 111-year-old organization created to serve America's young women appears to have adopted critical race theory, the divisive ideology that has taken root in America's school and corporations, schools and corporations. The four-part series, set to begin on December 13th, will start with a virtual lesson titled Foundations in Racial Equity, before launching into Foundations in Internalized Racism a month later, on January 16th. Understanding and decentering white supremacy culture will take place on February 5th and will be followed by the final session titled Navigating Change, Power, and Equitable Decision-Making in late March. A description of the session reads of the sessions reads like this, quote, These DEI racial equity workshops are designed for participants to engage in building a learning community, developing shared language and analysis around diversity, inclusion, and equity, deeply interrogating race. Participants also interrogate structural racism and its historical construction while reflecting greatly on the way it manifests in our individual experiences, organizational dynamics, and systemic outcomes, unquote. The decision to offer racial equity lessons mired in the dogmas of critical race theory comes after the Girl Scouts announced earlier this year that Scouts could earn an LGBTQ plus Pride Month fun patch if they attended a Pride Parade, memorized a poem written by an author who identifies as LGBTQ, or read about the Stonewall Uprising in 1969 and its importance to the LGBTQ community, writing a poem of their own about the event. The Girl Scouts have also published an anti-racism guide inspired by critical race theory that claims that colorblindness perpetuates racism and that young children show a, quote, bias towards whiteness, unquote. The guide instructs parents to talk to their children about racism, even implying that parents who refuse may be perpetuating unequal justice, health, and education systems. The Boy Scouts of America have also pushed left-wing worldviews on race, announcing in 2021 that aspiring Eagle Scouts would have to earn the Citizenship in Society Merit Badge. The Guide for Merit Badge Counselor directs readers to resources that bash colorblindness, denigrate Christopher Columbus, and celebrate the LGBT movement. That's the article uh, that got me revved up. This is another outrageous example of the left obsession with indoctrinating a captive audience of young people into their woke ideology to turn them against their parents, to turn them against their country, to turn them against their God, and to create an army of social justice activists at the earliest possible age. If any of your children are in the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts, get them out right now. An infinitely better option for boys is called Trail Life USA, which is what the Boy Scouts should be. The organization has a Christian orientation, which some parents may not be happy about, but the alternative is to abandon your children to the Marxist indoctrination of these formerly wholesome youth groups. I honestly don't know if there's an alternative for the Girl Scouts like Trail Life USA, and I apologize for that. I'm going to look into it. But meanwhile, rescue your children and save your family and get them out of the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Okay, now I want to address the big controversy, 
the ongoing Candace Owens-Ben Shapiro feud. If you follow conservative commentators or pay attention to what's trending on Twitter, sorry, X, then you can't have failed to notice the controversy stemming from what initially began as infighting over at the Daily Wire, specifically between founder Ben Shapiro and one of its big stars, Candace Owens. But their altercation very quickly morphed into something potentially much larger and more concerning than just a gossipy feud between two media personalities. For those who missed out on the backstory, most people became aware of this dispute after seeing a short viral video clip of Ben Shapiro responding to a question at a speaking engagement about his thoughts on Owens's take on the Israel-Hamas conflict. Shapiro called her commentary on the subject disgraceful and ridiculous, although he didn't go into specifics. But uh, Candace Owens has generally been skeptical of the war and of U.S. involvement and has been accused of equivocating between Israel and Hamas, suggesting that Israel is waging genocide against the Palestinians. For the record, they are not, of course, and making comments that suggest Israel is an apartheid state. For the record, it is not. Candace Owens responded to Shapiro on social media, kind of passive-aggressively, actually. She didn't address his criticism directly or him by name, but she posted quotes from the New Testament's Gospel of Matthew. Those quotes are, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So that's what Candace Owens posted on Twitter. This was clearly directed at Ben Shapiro and his criticism of her. Shapiro shot back online, Candace, if you feel that taking money from the Daily Wire somehow comes between you and God, then by all means quit. To which Owens replied, kind of bizarrely, you are utterly out of line for suggesting that I cannot quote biblical scripture. The Bible is not about you. Well, this was an utterly deceitful spin, considering that Shapiro said nothing about prohibiting her from quoting scripture. And although the Bible may not be all about Shapiro, Owens' original quote certainly was, and as her boss, he was justified in calling her out about it. Some respondents on Twitter took Owens to task for willfully misinterpreting Shapiro's tweet, but as soon as she made the dispute about him suppressing her right to quote the New Testament, Jew haters on Twitter rallied to her defense to pump up her false narrative that this was all about a Jew whose loyalty to Israel supposedly supersedes his loyalty to America versus an all an America first Christian who wants the US to stay out of foreign wars. And if that sounds like I'm kind of blowing this out of proportion, then I urge you to simply scan the comments on social media posts about these two. Candace has many loyal followers, but a disturbing number of them seem to be Jew haters, some of whom openly embrace the label groipers. Groipers, if you don't know, are the racist America First followers of this repugnant young online demagogue named Nick Fuentes. And these people are helping to spin the controversy in a way that pits Christians against Jews and America First supporters against supporters of Israel. One Twitter user, for example, wrote, Christian quotes Bible, Jew takes it personally. Many such cases. 
Another one wrote, Well, to be fair, to them, meaning Jews, quoting scripture is like garlic to a vampire. Yet another Twitter user rather viciously urged Candace to cook him. Cook him. Anti-Israel propagandist Jackson Hinkle, who has over 2 million Twitter followers, tweeted repeatedly in support of Owens, such as this tweet, quote, I'm not surprised that the genocidal Zionist Ben Shapiro is offended by the Bible, exclamation uh, mark. One groper posted a short video of Nick Fuentes taking Owens' side against Shapiro, whom that slimy hate monger accused of not caring about white people or America, only Israel. This is a common anti-Semitic trope, by the way, the smear that American Jews have double loyalties or even a greater loyalty to Israel, and therefore they are potentially or literally traitorous. That is Nick Fuentes's rabble-rousing claim that Jews can't be trusted, that just under the surface they're anti-American as well as anti-Christian. Even conservative commentator Jason Whitlock defended Owens by attacking what he called Jewish elites and accusing Ben Shapiro of dual loyalty. Okay, let me say this. Full disclosure. I know Ben Shapiro, and we are, as far as I know, on friendly terms, although we haven't communicated with each other for several years. We used to work together at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I sometimes agree with Ben, sometimes not. I've never met Candace Owens, but for various reasons, I am not now, nor have I ever been a fan. On a personal level, I'm completely indifferent about their feud. My concern is that the truth about why Ben slammed her, her deplorable ignorance about Israel, and her moral equivalence about Israel and Hamas, is now being overwhelmed by a narrative she created in order to present herself as the innocent victim of Ben's supposed enmity toward Christians. This is part of a pattern, by the way, of how Candace Owens deflects criticism of her sometimes questionable positions, not by defending her stance in skillful debate, much less by confessing her ignorance, but by steering things in a different direction, turning the spotlight on her critics, and steamrolling over them with verbal diarrhea. Case in point, in an appearance on a recent episode of comedian Bill Maher's podcast called Club Random, Owens acknowledged, not for the first time, her skepticism of America's 1969 moon landing. Needless to say, Bill Maher was taken aback, especially when she added, I just want to know why we didn't go back there. We did go back, Maher countered, like ten times. Well, to be precise, after the historic 1969 landing, America went back to the moon a half dozen times, five of those including moon landings, but Maher did correctly add a moment later that a dozen different astronauts have walked on the moon. To cover her ignorance about it, Owens immediately began demanding the names of all those astronauts. Who the F remembers what the astronauts' names were, Mar began, but she pressed on, well, it's a pretty big deal to walk on the moon. Who else walked on it? Mar got kind of uncharacteristically flustered as she pounced to make him look like the ignorant one. What were their names? She kept pestering. She went on to barrage him with her rapid-fire delivery about how and why he even dug up this topic without ever admitting his valid point that her moon landing denial calls into question her judgment on other more important topics. Similarly, rather than address Shapiro's criticism of her appalling ignorance about Israel and her moral equivalence in accusing the Jewish state of apartheid and genocide, she accused him of suppressing her faith, as if Shapiro would ever do such a thing. 
Now, as I understand it, the great majority of the commentators, the staff, and even funders of the Daily Wire are Christian. Shapiro is devoutly Jewish and hence does not believe in Christ's divinity, but to suggest that he has some kind of animosity toward his Christian employees and objects to them publicly expressing their faith is just ludicrous. Many conservatives now feel compelled to choose sides between Shapiro and Owens, and thus between Jews and Christians, as well as between Israel and America. This seems to beg clarification of what it means to put America first. I think too many America firsters seem to believe that the term means America alone. It should not. I, for example, wholeheartedly support America first, but I do not support absolute isolationism which in any case is impractical, if not impossible, in today's world. America first should include supporting, to a reasonable extent, our allies, especially Israel. That is a right and just thing to do. America first should mean shoring up our own border, economy, and military preparedness before trying to import democracy, sorry, export democracy around the world to countries that don't want it, and before hemorrhaging money to corrupt regimes abroad. It should mean avoiding foreign wars when possible and not playing the world's policeman, but also supporting our close friends in Israel against the genocidal evil of Islamic imperialism. To sum up, the Owens-Shapiro showdown is bigger than even the oversized personas of Candace and Ben. Their clash has become the flashpoint of two broader issues. One issue is whether America first means shooting ourselves in the foot with a rigid isolationism on the one hand, or, on the other hand, embracing a common-sense self-interest that includes supporting our closest allies in a world that is made exponentially more dangerous by a subversive globalist Democrat administration. And two, the second issue, the Owens-Shapiro feud threatens to empower a shameful strain of anti-Semitism among a minority of conservatives who call themselves Christian. As believers in the Judeo-Christian foundation of our civilization's moral code and spiritual strength, American Christians and Jews should and must be natural allies. These are rifts in conservatism that the groipers of the right and the Hamas lovers of the left will happily exploit to divide and conquer their political opponents. Conservatives must not allow those hateful agendas to prevail. And that's the right take on those issues. Thank you again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, please leave that positive review. Be seeing you. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.